Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. I want to welcome all of you who are here, especially those of you who maybe are here for the first time or sporadic. I have this morning chosen a theme for our study, which I think will be particularly um, suited for you if you find it difficult to come to church, and many in our congregation find it very difficult to come for the worship part. They, they get here at the end of the music and want to hear the talking. And uh, it is difficult to live by faith, and it is difficult for us to live in this life with our eyes on heaven. It seems as if this life is all there is. And yet, Scripture tells us over and over again that this life is just an entryway. It's just the uh, foyer, you know, that place you come in. That foyer is to this sanctuary as this life is to eternity. And that God is working in us, preparing us for heaven and for the time that we will forevermore be dwelling in his presence. And God knows we're weak. God knows we have a tendency to be like the little child that walks in the candy store and sees all the candy but doesn't hear his mother saying no or just a little bit. And that's the way we are with this world. We see the beauty of the Uh, Bradford pears and the tulips and all of the beauty that there is in spring and it tends to seduce us from seeing the one to whom all nature testifies and that's Jesus Christ through whom God made everything that exists. So this morning knowing my weakness and maybe yours I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 verses 11 to 20. This is our text, and by the way, the reason we preach and worship is because God has appointed preaching to be the means by which the Holy Spirit gives us faith and changes us, gives us new life. And it seems like a foolish, ineffective, and very weak tool for God to use when he has uh, 10,000 angels at his disposal. But all through scripture, it's very clear that God has commanded us to preach the gospel. And so that's what we do here every single Sunday. And I encourage you to come back every single Sunday and put yourself under the preaching of the word. And I make no apology for that, even though most of the time I'll be the one preaching to you. If it weren't for the preaching of the word, I would have no spiritual life. And so I'm very grateful to God for the preachers who have called me to faith. All right, let's stand as we read this text out of honor for God's word. This is the word of the Lord and it is eternally true. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. You may be seated. Usually what we do is we take a short passage of scripture and we, we open it up as preaching of the gospel. And this week we have a very small section of the gospel of Matthew and a very small, a smaller section of the chapter 28 of Matthew. And as is usually the case in a story, you pick it up in the middle. And so the first thing we read is now while they were on their way, and we don't have any idea who they is and, and where they were headed. Who was on their way and where were they going? Well, it's early Sunday morning, and so today's Sunday, and the reason we celebrate, the reason we worship on Sunday is because this is the day of our Lord's resurrection, all right? That changed, and uh, that's something that changed in the early church, and so Early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary had gone to the tomb. And this was where the body of their beloved master lay. And so why did they go there? Well, they went there to grieve. They went there because they loved Jesus. And they wanted to be close to him. Some of you were up at the service in... uh, um, In... Indianapolis a couple weeks ago, and my brother preached on the particularization of, of Queer Note Church Indy, and he told about how a couple of weeks ago, when he and I were both in Philadelphia, we spent a good bit of time in, uh, in a cemetery in, right outside of Philadelphia in Newtown Square. And What he didn't tell you was that when I say a good bit of time, I mean a good bit of time. I would guess close to two to three hours. And we just walked through and through and through the cemetery. And um, it was a cemetery where probably uh, four-fifths of the cemetery did not have tombstones, but instead had brass plaques about this long and about that wide. And so you couldn't look like this. You had to look like this. And then a lot of them had sunk down a little bit. And so over the course of the winter, leaves had blocked the plaque. So you had to take your foot and you had to pull the leaves out of the plaque. And we were looking for the grave where my brothers were buried. While we were there looking, we never did find it. Um... Loved ones came in and went to the grave. And they were going to the graves because of their love for the one that was buried there. 
I know in movies sometimes it's out of anger and bitterness and, you know, they go to the grave to have some... But I don't believe that. I don't believe people go to graves to, to vent their bile. All the people I've seen at gravesides are there because of love. And that's Mary Magdalene and Mary. And they love Jesus. We live in a very wicked day when it's inconceivable to anybody that there could be any love that isn't sexual. And so, uh, wicked men take the relationship of David and Jonathan and say that it was homosexual. And similarly, wicked men take the relationship of Mary Magdalene with Jesus and say that it was sexual. And it's as if to men today, unless somebody's in bondage to their lust, it's inconceivable to them that there would be a relationship. You know, well, you have to have lust to have a relationship. The relationship of Mary and Jesus was pure, absolutely pure. And here we find her on Sunday morning, out there very early with Mary, the other Mary, at the grave of the one that they loved. Very tender relationship Jesus had with these women. So they went to grieve, but when they arrived at the grave, something awful and wonderful happened. First, they were met by one of God's awful, terrible, and glorious angels. They sat trying to figure out what words to use, you know? in a day of little Hummel and all this kitschy. Although I was happy to see this last week that Mattel, the value went down because nobody's buying Barbie dolls anymore. And I say, yes, there is progress, (laughs) you know. Um, But, you know, you see, you go into these Hallmark stores where they have these knickknacks that, I hope you won't say I'm sexist if I say that women collect. <laughs> I have not yet known a man that collected these, these little porcelain angels, you know. And so we have this idea, and Jody, a couple of years ago at our Christmas concert, Jody talked about this, and he said the best thing we could do is to go home and smash these little angels we have because they bear no resemblance whatsoever to angels. And so these... The angels that we read about in Scripture are terribly awful. They strike terror in those that see them. Anyone who comes from the presence of God strikes terror in sinful man. This is the reason that the Israelites asked Moses to veil himself when he came from the presence of God. They couldn't bear looking at him. And angels are perfect creatures. They're not little Hummel stuff, okay? And so what we see is they're there at the grave, and uh, we see that first they see the angels, right? And then... In verse 9 and 10, earlier in the chapter, it says, And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And again, this indicates that Jesus is not a humble figure. Because your natural inclination wouldn't be to fall on your face and hug the feet of a humble figure. 
but they worshipped him. Jesus had glory now. He wasn't a little baby in Bethlehem. He wasn't a man hanging naked on a cross now. He was the king of kings and the lord of lords. He had been raised from the dead. And so they fell at his feet and they grabbed his feet and they worshipped him. And then Jesus, it says in verse 10, said to them, do not be afraid. And so we know what their response was to seeing Jesus, right? If he says, don't be afraid, that must have been their response to seeing the angel and then seeing Jesus. Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brothers to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. You know, in our feminist age, just as everybody perverts the relationship of David and Jonathan to be homosexual and the relationship of Mary Magdalene and Jesus to be sexual, so they pervert the relationship of leadership. And they they love to do it right here at the resurrection. They say, see, the first preacher were Mary Magdalene and Mary who were sent to tell the disciples. And see, women today should be sent. And so you should have women in the pulpit preaching. And so my, my sister, when she visited us, said that she, she would never take communion in our church until we had women serving communion in our church. And I, I guarantee you she'd be even happier if we had a woman preaching. And so you see that sinful man corrupts absolutely everything that is in Scripture. We, we just can't help it. And so here we have a very beautiful picture of women doing what women do. And it's not sexist to say it. They're at the grave. They're mourning. They're grieving. And Jesus loves these women. And then he says to them, go and tell my brothers. And so Jesus is in a tender relationship. And then he sends them to the brothers. And he tells the brothers that they're to go to Galilee and that he's going to meet them there. All right. Now, why would he do that? Well, we'll get back to that later. And it says, while they were on their way, and that's everything that preceded this. So in other words, we're talking about Mary Magdalene and Mary, and they were on their way to tell the disciples what it was that Jesus had commanded, that they had seen Jesus and that he wanted them to go to Galilee and he would meet them there. Now, while they were on their way, verse 11, we read, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Now, do you remember the story behind the guards? Let's let's remind ourselves who these guards are. We read in Matthew 27, you remember in Isaiah 53, it says, and the rich men in the grave. And so sure enough, Isaiah 53 is fulfilled because it's Joseph of Arimathea, who is very wealthy, who provides his grave for Jesus to be buried in, all right? And we read in Matthew 27, Beginning with verse 59, after Jesus was crucified, we read, And Joseph of Arimathea took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb. So he was one of these guys that had the salesman call from the funeral home and he did, what what do they call it, future planning or what's it called? Whatever. He was thinking ahead, as rich men usually do. And he had bought himself a grave. And how, how loving that he took his own grave and gave it to Jesus. 
And so he took Jesus and he uh, wrapped him, his body, in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Do you see this, people? Were the disciples there? You know, it's one of the things that's unbelievable, those of us who are married, that a woman will love a man. And with any one of us, it is unbelievable. With Jesus, it wasn't unbelievable because Jesus was not selfish. He wasn't pig-headed. He wasn't lazy. There was nothing, nothing sinful about Jesus. And so when Joseph is burying Jesus' body, the same women who loved him and came on Sunday morning were there when he was buried loving him. They were there loving him. Do you know what I think is so sad today? I think one of the saddest moments in, in the years that I've been a pastor was I, when I was in Wisconsin, I used to live right, our backyard abutted a funeral home. So we were, knew the funeral director very well. And so anytime they had somebody who didn't have anybody to bury them, I'd bury them. And one time there was a young couple not married, had a child who was, uh, I don't know the problem, but the child died, I think, just a few weeks into the child's life, some problem when the ch- physically with the child. So here you had this couple who weren't a couple, who weren't married. I don't think they were even living together. And that funeral had like a, one or two doctors and then a nurse or two, and then this couple. I don't even think they were sitting together. So there were maybe seven people. It was in the middle of winter. It was very cold. And so I led the funeral service, and then after the funeral service was over, what do you do? You go to the grave. But I remember distinctly that day that the funeral director tried her best to keep us from going to the grave. And why? Well, some of you have been through this. You know that if it isn't convenient to go to the grave today, we try to not go to the grave. As a matter of fact, if we had our druthers, we wouldn't go to the funeral. I often get asked by parents whether or not I think they should take their children to a funeral of a relative. And I say, absolutely. How are they going to know it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment if we hide death from them? And so that particular day, I said to the funeral director, no, we are going to the grave. And I was not going to tell that couple what to do, but I was going to the grave. There was a lot of snow, and they plow these uh, roads on, in the graveyards such that if you step out of your car, you are in the deep snow. You know, it's wide enough for the tires to pass, but not for you to get out. I remember getting out of my car, and immediately I had uh, snow down my shoes, you know. I was so encouraged that that couple, I don't know why, but they made the decision to come out to the cemetery. And there they were. It was so obvious that they were estranged if there was anything left in their relationship. And we put that little that little baby down in the ground. 
And you think about Jesus, his body, and Mary Magdalene loved him. And so when they took his body, do you think she let that body get out of her sight? No, 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 no. She loved much. And so the body is put in Joseph, and she must have loved Joseph of Arimathea, right? To see this rich man taking care of her master, giving him his grave, rolling the stone, and she's there. She sees it. And then the first day of the week, they come. Now, On the next day, we read in verse 62 of the previous chapter, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Who's Pilate? Pilate's the Roman governor that presides over that area. Uh, Rome is this humongous power and authority, and it has a local governor. It's America, the empire of America had a governor in Kabul, right? And so that's Pilate. And we read that After they buried Jesus, the chief priests and the Pharisees, and that would be like me, I'm a chief, uh, what what do they call me, a chief pastor? (laughs) Senior minister, senior pastor. The chief priests and the Pharisees, and Pharisees would be like uh, seminary professors, uh, gathered together with Pilate, this Roman governor, and they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, now listen to this, That when he was still alive, that deceiver said. This is what they call Jesus. Now, ask yourself this question. Even if you don't go to church very often at all, what word is the last word you'd ever use to describe Jesus? Deceiver. And the reason is that Jesus always got in trouble for what he said. What on earth is the sense of getting in trouble if you're lying? The whole purpose of lies is so you won't get in trouble. I mean, if there's one thing everybody knows about Jesus, it's that he was not a deceiver. You've heard it said unto you that thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, it's like, is he lying there? <laughs> Men, huh? You've heard it said to you, and you think of Jesus all through his life. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Is he lying there? And yet, here's what they say. Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, and this would be Jesus, after three days I am to rise again. That's quite interesting that the religious leaders who hated Jesus just knew, matter-of-factly, that Jesus had said he would, he would rise again after three days. It was common knowledge. Everybody knew that Jesus had said after three days he'd rise from the dead. Everybody knew it. And Jesus had been saying this over and over again throughout his time of preaching, the three years from 30 to 33 that he was actually ministering publicly and was known. In Matthew 16, we read, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day 
be raised to life. So it's very clear he has said that he will be raised on the third day. In John 2.18, when Jesus is challenged about his authority to cleanse the temple, and he was asked, you remember we saw last week or the week before, he was asked, what, by what authority do you do these things, cleansing the temple? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body in John 2. This is what it tells us. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So that would have been the first cleansing of the temple. Another time of confrontation when the Pharisees demanded a sign, Jesus responded in this way. This is Matthew, 20, or Matthew 12, 39 and 40. Jesus answered and said, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You remember when Jesus uh, asked, but who do, you, who do you say I am? Who do men say I am? Who do you say? And remember G- that, that Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. Well, we read in, all th- in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, we read that Jesus then said this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must, I love that word, must, what musted him? What must the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? What is it that requires God to do anything? What is it? Well, there are two answers to that. One of the reasons he must is because it was prophesied in the Old Testament, and Jesus spent his entire life obeying the prophecies of the Old Testament. But beyond that, why were the prophecies written the way they were? And again, being a wicked generation today, we hate this truth. But the reason is that Jesus submitted to his father. His father sent him. His father commanded him. And so Jesus, what? Must, all right? And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And we see the same same statement made in Mark and Luke at the same period in Jesus' life. Now, notice that the disciples were so scandalized by his prediction of his own suffering and death that they missed his promise of resurrection. So after the transfiguration, Jesus told them what was about to happen. And here's how they reacted. Listen to this. This is Mark 9, 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And in verse 10, it says, they kept the matters to themselves discussing what, quote, rising from the dead, unquote, meant. 
Similarly, in Mark 9.30, we read, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And it says, verse 32, but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Uh, Let's see, what is it? Kill? Do you not understand that? And rise. Well, yeah, that's, that's what they didn't understand. They didn't understand kill and rise. Then Matthew 17, 22, and this one is really interesting because of what you see right next to another thing. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life, and the disciples were filled with grief. Now, you know why they were filled with grief, right? They will kill him. But then he says, three days, and he will be raised to life, and the disciples are filled with grief. In other words, it was like, right over the top of their heads. You know, that he be raised from the dead, it just does not compute. And of course, (laughs) it doesn't compute to us either. If there's one thing that's certain, it is death. Right? So then we come down to the end of his life as they're going into Jerusalem. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, we read in Matthew 20, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. And so now let's go back to these guards. It says in verse 62 of the previous chapter, on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, sir, you remember this? We remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I am to rise again. So absolutely everybody knew that that's what he said. I'm going to rise from the dead, right? And then they say this, listen to this. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. In other words, They hired guards whose job it was to keep everybody away from the grave and certainly not to allow the body to be stolen, let alone the body to come out. And then they put a seal over the stone so it would be very clear to anybody looking at the stone whether it had been moved. All right? So the Jews' religious leaders were very fearful of the cult of Jesus. Now you say, cult? I say, yeah, cult. Cult. 
Why? Well, a cult is anything that departs from mainstream religion. And mainstream religion was what killed Jesus. And so they were petrified of the cult of Jesus. Even after he's in the grave, they were petrified. As they saw it, they had nothing more to fear from Jesus himself. He was dead and buried. They'd seen to that. But his disciples, they were something else. They might steal Jesus' body as a way of perpetuating this new religious cult. And so something had to be done to guard against that. Now, what would they do? Well, guards, of course. So they got Pilate's permission to post armed guards at Jesus' tomb and to assure the stone set over the entry would not be moved, so they put a seal on it. Now then, we pick up our sermon text again at the point where the guards report to the Jewish chief priests and Pharisees that their mission was a failure. Verse 11, now while they were on their way, and this is Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and they're on their way to tell the disciples that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee, all right? While they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Now, exactly what did the guards report to the chief priests and the religious leaders? What did they report? Well, it says all that had happened. So now, what did they report? Well, here's what they reported. Matthew 28, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, so this is the first thing they reported. A severe earthquake had occurred. Right? Wasn't fracking. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone. Now, I like that, right? The earthquake, then an angel from heaven, he rolls the stone away, right? And then what does the angel do? He sat upon it. And his appearance was, now what does lightning look like? Well, if you can snap a picture of it and put filters on it and stuff, you might want to look at it. But generally, you don't enjoy. Why? Because it's an unbelievably violent bright. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing is white as snow. And so what was the response of these brave military men? walking around with guns in their holsters. It says the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now, let's go back. Some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. That's what they reported. Now, do you think the chief priests, you know, the old game of telephone? You know... I say to you, um, a severe earthquake, the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, rolled away the stone, sat on it, his appearance was like light, his clothing is white as snow, and we shook for fear of it, became like dead men. And out of that comes, we fell asleep. <laughs> and while we were all asleep, every one of us, at the same time, we didn't 
hear the earthquake. And we didn't see the stone, or we didn't hear, we didn't feel the earthquake. We didn't hear the stone being rolled away. And didn't see no angel. Now, what they told the religious leaders was the truth. What had happened. And those religious leaders were wicked. And don't you ever think you're good. You're not good. You will add insult to injury. You will add lie to sin. You will sin and add sin to lie. You will multiply the depth to which you have sunk. It's not enough to sink this much. You will then cover up that sinking with more and more and more. And this is what you see on the part of these religious leaders. They are jealous of Jesus, the Son of God. And so they oppose him at every point. And when they finally realize the whole world is going after him and he jeopardizes the position of, uh, 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 what would you say, the position of honor, the position of leadership, they have worked out with Rome. You know what I'm saying? We'll keep these people pacified and calm if you put us into a position of honor. That was the whole deal, you know? They were like uh, Karzai, you know? And so they hate Jesus. They hate him. And when they see the whole world is going out, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. You can't have it. This thing is, the whole world's going after him. And so they, they, they persecute him and persecute him, persecute him. And even Pilate does his best to keep him from being executed. They're, they're bound and determined. And so they take him to the grave, but then even after the grave, it's not sufficient, is it? Then they put up the guard, and then when they find out that God is still resisting them, that God is not mocked, that doesn't stop them, does it? Then they tell their lie. And listen, this is you. And your problem is not that your wife knows your lie. Your problem is not that your son or your son-in-law has confronted you in your lie. Your problem is that there are no secrets from God. And when you set yourself out to resist God, he will out you. You know, out has become a wonderful moral thing today. You know, he came out. Let me tell you. God is the only one that we should fear. And God sees everything, and he sees with perfect clarity. Okay? And so forget about all the sinners around you who want to point and say, you know? Forget them. What does God see? You know, here these Jewish religious leaders are, and they realize how deep in they are, and so they have to keep perpetuating it. You know, now, what what are they going to do? They're going to tell all the people that they lead that, in fact, Jesus is the Messiah? What are they going to do? They're going to say that he has risen from from the dead? You know, you uh, you go later among the church fathers, 
And you have a, a dialogue between a church father named Justin Martyr and Typho. And, and they actually discuss this same lie that the Jewish religious leaders get the guards to tell here. You see it here? When they had assembled, verse 12, with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Verse 13, after they'd had their, uh, their church council, their general assembly, their presbytery meeting, their convention, right? They came out and said, verse 13, you are to say, even that is damning, isn't it? You are to say, not tell people the truth, but you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Is that what they told, were told had happened? No. They were told what had really happened. So they come out, and they bribed these guys with a lot of money to say this. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Can you imagine being a guard and telling that? I mean, generally guards are attached to their job. <laughs> and what's their job? Well, the job is to guard. And so it's very humiliating, but it's beyond humiliating. Remember the Philippian jailer. When an earthquake comes and hits his jail, what does he do? Immediately, he is going to kill himself, just like the vice principal of that Southern Korea school. He feels so horrible at the death of all the students that he kills himself. And yet these guards are given a lot of money. And you know what Pilate's reaction to them not doing their job would be. But the religious leaders say, don't worry about Pilate, we'll handle everything for you. Just tell the lie. Tell the lie. Verse 14, if this should come to the governor's ears, and that would have been Pilate, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And then verse 15 says this, and they took the money and did as they had been instructed, and this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Lies do in fact spread, and they do in fact have staying power. Lies can be the ordering principle across centuries and millennia. Lies do prevail among those Jews who to this day have not bowed before their Messiah. The Jews don't think Jesus didn't exist. And then verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now you notice that thing there? That little thing? Up until now it's been what? That's right. Up until now it's been twelve. And now it's 11. What happened to the 12th? It's Judas. 
Last night I was reading an article. Um, I don't remember where it was published. But it was an article. Uh, there's a Capuchin uh, father who since 1988 has been the preacher to the papal household. And the only person who's allowed to preach to the Pope is the preacher to the papal household. And for, for forever, it has been a member of this Capuchin order. And so they had, um, they were trying to talk about uh, this new Pope and how he is... Uh, um, I, his own man. I think that's, that's the narrative. He's his own man, right? And one of the things they were saying his, he's his own man about is the fact that he is acknowledging, or shall we say the, uh, the preacher that he sits under is acknowledging that in fact there may be nobody in hell. And they used as justification for that the fact that this Capuchin father in his preaching this past week uh, on Good Friday said that uh, Jesus, uh, or not that Jesus, that Judas may not be in hell because we don't know what happened at the end of his life. He may have repented. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is that scripture is very clear not because we don't know what happened at the end of his life, but because Scripture tells us about Judas's fate. And my belief was that the journalist was abusing the Capuchin father, although the Capuchin father shouldn't have said that we don't know what happened at the end of his life because Scripture does tell us what happened to Judas. But listen, Judas Iscariot betrayed the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, into the hands of sinful men as a direct result of his action, God's Son was crucified. And if we can get to the point today where we think that it's more evolved and progressive and sensitive and loving and, and more, more integrated for us to believe that there's nobody in hell, life has no meaning. Life has absolutely no meaning because you must be such a heartless individual that there is no victim anywhere in the world that you feel their pain. Do you understand this? Because you must not grieve for the bloodshed of the innocents. You must not mourn over those betrayed in the marriage bed. You must not cry for the orphans. God is just. And when the number of the disciples went from the 12, which is always in other places where, how it's referred to, to the 11, something really happened to the 12th. And it was at the end of a rope. And you know what's interesting is, just like the guards, Judas did it for money. And in America today, oh, we're so cocky about how, well, you just shouldn't love money, you know, or you shouldn't love money. What was that, Doug, this last week we heard? It was like, you shouldn't love money 
too much. That's what I thought it was. And what was that? Like an ad or something? It was an ad. You know, make sure you don't love money. Too much. Now, that's a sentiment that Americans can fall in love with. (laughs) Just don't love it too much, right? Judas loved money. You remember that when that wonderful lover of Jesus was washing his feet with her hair and took perfume worth a year's wages and broke it on him, that Judas was ticked off. Do you remember that? And he said that what she should have done is sold that perfume because then they could have helped the poor. And then the Holy Spirit has this little addendum, this little editorial note there, and says this was because he was stealing money from the treasury. And so what we see is that Judas opposed love for Jesus. Extravagant love. Why? Because he was stealing money. And so Judas came down to selling his master for 30 pieces of silver. And now we have the guards selling Jesus for what? A large amount of money. Probably a lot more than 30 pieces. And then what happened to them? Do you think when they took money, when they took a bribe, do you think their soul became freer? Can you imagine the pressure on them to take that money? They may have had greedy wives, always using the credit card. But what we know is if one of them had left that meeting and gone out and told the truth, it would have been horrible. Because there would have been one story coming out of all of authority, you know, the religious leaders and and the other men and then the, the, the kook who says, no, 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 that's not the way. It was an earthquake. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I suppose we didn't feel it in Jerusalem. Well, actually, there was an earthquake, and then, and then the stone, and then this angel is bright, bright in lightning, and he sat on the stone. Verse 16, the 11 disciples pre- proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And that's what happened to the 12th. He's gone. You know, postmoderns always talk about narratives. And, and what they mean is story. But narrative makes it feel more dignified, you know. And the thing about a story is it always ends with living happily ever after. And you can really put on any end to the story that you want, you know. But this isn't in a story. This is history. This is truth. And what we see is that the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. The 12th was gone. He sold his soul for money. And then he committed suicide. And then he went to hell. And now there are 11. I had... One of the most common things that I hear in the ministry is I have loved ones come back from a funeral. And what they tell me after the funeral is that the presiding minister, priest, whatever it is, obviously didn't know their relative at all. 
because they just lie. They just told all this good stuff and everybody sitting at the funeral looking at each other going, yikes. But the 12, no, no, come on. The 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And then my favorite part of the story When they saw him, they worshipped him. And of course, of course, they worshipped him. And then it says, but some were doubtful. And that's the title of our sermon today. Some were doubtful. As we get older, we doubt. Because it does seem as if life just goes on the same. It certainly is true that evil and wickedness grow and prosper. And when we look around for those who worship Jesus Christ, what we see are those who worship LeBron James and Taylor Swift. As a matter of fact, people worship almost anyone other than Jesus. And yet, he is meek and humble of heart. And today, people don't ever worship the meek and the humble. They worship the proud. And it's so easy to doubt and to think that God is not in his heaven. And that Jesus will not return. And then we look at the hatred that comes on God's children because they oppose fornication and adultery and sodomy and bestiality. And we think, well, you know, maybe Jesus didn't really mean it that all authority is given to him on heaven and on earth, you know? Maybe what Jesus meant is me and Jesus private in my heart, deep within my heart. And if I just love Jesus deep inside and quick die, then I can be with Jesus. And so instead of us going into all the world, because the text ends with Jesus, it says what? Well, what it says is, but some were doubtful, right? And then it says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them. So in other words, the doubt is met by Jesus with what? He came up to them. He closed the distance. Do you see that? And all of a sudden, he's just him. And then he said something that was perfectly calculated to get everybody to just chill out. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. It hasn't been given to the United States of America. Hasn't been given to Vladimir Putin. And it most 
certainly hasn't been given to LeBron James. All authority has been given to him. So, do you see what's going on here? When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. So they worshipped, and some were doubtful. And isn't that a perfect description of how we live our Christian lives? We worship, we're doubtful. And Jesus approaches us. He comes to us. It says, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. That's how Jesus deals with our doubt. He comes up to us. And he meets with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he walked with me and he talked with me and he told me I am his own. Of course it's a good hymn. Because it's describing what exactly happened here with Mary Magdalene and Mary. And he said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Not just of the northern hemisphere. But the southern, the northern, the east, the west, the poor, the rich, all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And then again, he stoops to our weakness and he says, lo... I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so this is how Jesus deals with us. He knows our frame that we are made of dust. He knows our weakness. He knows our fearfulness. He knows our timidity. He knows our lust. He knows our greed. He knows our desire to sell them for 30 pieces of silver. But some of us, he watches over us. And he doesn't watch over us so that we can sit and have private religion. The very ones who were doubtful, he commanded to go into all the world. And so, listen. Barack Obama and... Sports stars are coming out. I don't see why Christians shouldn't come out. Right? Easter must be the day above all days of the year when Christians agree with one another that we will come out of the closet and that we will live for Jesus. And yes, we're weak and we're doubtful and we're timid. And yes, it's going to be nasty. I often bring out in my sermon a little piece of wood that sits in my, in my, in my office where there's uh, a piece of silver mounted in the bottom and then there are 11 crosses. One of them's upside down and the other are just stuck in and they're just horseshoe nails soldered together, real rough. My dad did it when I was a junior in high school. And on the back, he said, to Tim, 
on Christmas 1970 with love. And on the front, that's all it is. It's a bunch of crosses and a piece of silver. And the silver is Judas, and the 11 crosses are the disciples. Church tradition has it that most of them suffered martyrs' deaths. And the one upside down is Peter, who when he came to die on a cross, he said, crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to die the same way my master did. And so... Your weakness is understood. It's nothing new. And it's to you that Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples. And I'm weak. If you ever watch Sunday morning, could have seen it back there. David Carell goes by me, and what do I do every Sunday morning? Some of you know. I ask David, if he'll please pray for me. Why? Because I'm doubtful and because I'm weak. And you're doubtful and you're weak. But Jesus comes to us in our weakness and he says, go. And so that's our call from him on this Resurrection Sunday. To go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given all authority, not some, not a little bit, not a wee bit, but all authority in heaven and on earth to your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we know it is the power of God to all those who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, Father, as we again turn to sing, we pray that you will stir our hearts up and that we will not be ashamed, but that we will be zealous for the glory of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Dawn, who for so many years has strengthened us in our faith through her voice. We thank you, Father, for Bach, who has given us music that we can use to express the deepest feelings of our hearts. And we pray this morning for those here who are timid and fearful and doubtful, that you will cause our praise and our fellowship afterwards to strengthen them, that they will serve you and not be ashamed, but that they will live as bright lights shining in this dark world. We pray this for the sake of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. In his name, amen.